You are listening to the National Arts Centre's Dance Podcast. In the second of four podcasts with Karen Kane, the NAC's Kathy Levy and Gerald Morris talked to former prima ballerina Karen Kane about her rebellious behavior at the National Ballet School, her first performances and early years with the National Ballet of Canada, and the role of talent, hard work, preparation, opportunity, and sheer luck in her career. Kane also discusses motivation and confidence and the consequences of the lack of these and the value of a male dance partner. She did say things like, oh no, not another tall one, because, you know, she'd had Martine Van Hamel, who was my height, maybe even taller, and had had to go to Europe to look to try and find partners, because nowadays there's a lot more men who are very tall. But in my time, I was like the tallest thing ever. Wow. Um, and she said, oh, no, what am I going to do for partners for this one? You know, I've, and, and they did. They brought Hazaro Sermian over specifically to partner Martine Van Hamel because nobody could, could do all of the really heavy partnering with her. Of course, we have to remind our listeners that we're talking about a tall woman who then is elevated by another, what, three or four inches because of point shoes, right? Is it about that? Yes, a it couple is. More inches, I so. mean, you know, even if you're 5'7", once you get on your tiptoes, you, you're over six feet. Exactly. And, and uh, it can become, you know, comical if you're towering too much over, over the partner. So she was very worried about that, but she did recognize my talent. She just didn't know how she was going to manage. Um, but then, you know, Frank came along, and she put us together right away. Um, and Rudolph, even though I was too tall for Rudolph, he was, seemed to be happy to, to dance with me. So, And then, you know, nowadays, uh, with our company, um, they're much... We have many tall ladies. You know, I'm not... My height is... You know, I guess that's just the changing de- generations. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. yeah. So you, you get into the company, and did, did you go right to being soloist? Right? To, how soon were you, were you promoted? Oh, no, I no. didn't go right to being soloist. Um, oh, I have one more story about the school. Please. And then we'll go to when I... Um, you can tell us many more stories about well, this, this one, whatever comes this to mind. Well, this one is famous. In fact, when I go back to the school, the little kids ask me if it's true. Did I really do this? And I really did this. <laughs> um, I just love animals. I still love animals. And I, want, I was in residence. You can't have pets in residence. And I was told I couldn't have a pet in residence. And I knew that. But I still went and got a puppy. And I got this puppy from... <laughs> no cocoons, no pets. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a rebel, aren't you, Miss Kane? <laughs> oh yeah. Didn't know. Oh, I was all, also almost expelled for being caught kissing boys in Ooh. school. Okay, I want to hear that story times. after the dog. Well, that's all there is to it. You know. <laughs> but the dog's the really famous one. Um, so I was, and it was on Jarvis Street, and Jarvis Street in those days was pretty, you know. But there was some poor family living around the school that their dog had had puppies and they were trying to get rid of them. And I just happened to walk by <laughs> that time. <laughs> and they were free, you know, just oh, little wow. mongrels. So um, I managed to get all uh, 18 girls in residence to protect this plan. This was our puppy. And um, 
we managed like two weeks to keep this puppy hidden with in up in our, our room. <laughs> I, I at that point I had been in rooms with five girls, but at that point I was in a room with one other girl at the back of this big old house on Jarvis Street. And we had newspapers all over the floor. And I would pass around at dinner. I would pass around a plastic bag under the table, and everyone would slip <laughs> some of their dinner into their into the bag. And it was working pretty well until one night he started to bark and he would not stop. I don't know what he heard, but we were muzzling and we were doing everything <laughs> and and the matron heard. And then, um, uh, yes, so then the puppy had to go back and I was taken to the to Betty's office the next day, the principal's office. And, and I always remember that she was trying not to laugh. <laughs> she was telling me off and I didn't get breakfast and I was sent back to my room and all that stuff. Um, but she was really having trouble uh, reprimanding me for this. Mm-hmm. But now that that's like in the school folklore. Everybody knows about <laughs> the puppy in residence. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so now that's three stories about almost getting expelled. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. must have. You, they must have absolutely known about your talent. And <laughs> it was worth the puppies and the kisses and I all those guess, other things. I guess. I guess. I think it was just typical teenage behavior. Maybe not the puppy, but but the rest of it. And uh, sure. I probably wasn't the only one, but. Yeah, they threatened to expel me. It must be such a thrill for those kids to meet you even today. I mean, you know, you people see you in Toronto, you're you're out there in the public eye, but still I try to imagine, you know, as you meeting Nuriev and Lynn Seymour, uh, you know, yeah. what it must be like for them to, to yeah. be able to, to have you come over there today. It's fantastic. Well, they're so sweet too, and I see I see in them whatever whatever it was that I had for the for, for dancing and I see that and the little ones who have left home at 11. And uh, Mavis actually asked me to come and speak to them a few years ago, one group, because they were really struggling with homesickness. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, I sort of talked to them for a while, and and uh, they're from all across the country and far away from their families and so little and young. And I'm, And one of them finally put up her hand and her lips were quivering, and she said, did you get home? Sick. Oh. And I, so I told her about, you know, how I would call home and my parents would say, just forget it, come home. But I knew that I really wanted to dance and that's what kept me there. And, you know, that's all you can do because um, if they really can't put up with it, um, then then they should go home. And, and sometimes they do go home for a year or two and then they come back, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, you know, whatever works for the child. Definitely... Uh, being so far away from home at that young an age is a very tough thing to do. How many of them, give us some sense of numbers, like how many would come in in a year, how many would make it to graduation, how many would make it to the company? What are the Mm. perspectives on that? Well, you know, talent kind of seems to come in waves. And, uh, you know, when I joined, I was in grade six, and there were four of us, and all four of us made it into the company. And only, only I, I was the only one who made it past four or five years. That they just they lost motivation and it was too hard, and they wanted to do other things. That's a very high percentage in a class, mm-hmm. but that's a very small class too. And the classes aren't that small anymore. There's 150 students there, um, and I think it wasn't much less than that in my time. It's always kind of maintained. Um, some years there, you know, there were years I remember where there was just a rash of, of talent. You know, a year where there, I don't know if you remember Jeremy Ransom and Martine Lamy and, and Serge Lavoie, and there were just like six or seven or eight of them, and they were all talented and fantastic, and they all came in the company. And other years where 
there's it's very thin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know, you can't you can't manufacture that and uh, and it's still the same today. And and I hear, you know, oh, a couple of years away from a huge influx of talent coming. Mm-hmm. You know, you, and when you go to the, see the school shows, you see. But maybe this year, not so much, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's just the way it is. Right. right. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're 18. You join the company. Mm-hmm. What happens then? The first thing we did was, I think, we did uh, Cranerk, which had already <laughs> been premiered here. Only I wasn't. It was 69. That's the year I joined. That's right. But you had it in, I guess, the end of the season, and I joined in the new season. It opened the National mm-hmm. Art Center on June 2nd, 1969, with Pierre Trudeau and Barbara Streisand and a whole bunch of other important people in the audience. And it has become a piece of folklore because I don't know that the ballet was done very many seasons after that, but it was lauded as quite a brave move on behalf of the founder, Hamilton Southam, and uh, Celia Franco, of course, to do this Roland Petit Ballet, uh, yeah. to this incredible score, and yeah. you know, for the opening that, of a major and, art center. And the backdrop was incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From what we've seen, I've just seen the photographs. Yeah, so. um, Zeph- uh, not Zeffirelli, that's a film director, but it's a famous uh, artist, he's no longer with us, it'll come back to me, Vassarelli. Okay. Vassarelli, the I mean, it was really, and and I got to be in it in the revival a few months later okay. because that was the big, and we did it in Toronto. Um, and I love this story too because of my first performance with the National Ballet of Canada. <laughs> um, and everyone wore unitards, and spandex in those days was not quite what it is now. It wasn't <laughs> quite as stretchy. And uh, of course, I w- I've mentioned how tall I was, and that that was a bit of a problem. And uh, I guess I was uh, replacing somebody who had left. And I got my white unitard, and I had a fitting. And I felt that the crotch was very low, and it was a little uncomfortable, and didn't feel very stretchy. But I was so shy, and I didn't say anything. Um, and got to my first performance, and I ran out with the corps de ballet. And the first thing we did was plunge into a huge kind of split thing, because it was very modern. Mm-hmm. And my unitard split <sighs> from the front to the back. Oh, all <laughs> and I could feel cold air everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and a huge noise, like it really went. Oh, my you know. gosh. <laughs> From the new girl. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, I had underwear on, and it was all fine. But, um, yeah, I learned a lesson to speak up in costume yeah. fittings when you don't think it's going to work. And I guess everybody around you must have heard the noise as well. Yeah, everybody oh heard gosh. it. And yeah, anyway, that was that was my first Cranach. But, um And I also had a, a partner, this is a funny story too, who had graduated from this school with me, who um, he was Polish, and his favorite thing to eat was garlic. And uh, I don't know if you remember Grand Eric very well. <laughs> I have never seen it. I've just seen the photographs. Okay. Yeah. Well, the corps de ballet, for the last pas de deux, uh, the corps de ballet are all uh, coupled and curled around each other on the floor and don't move. They're just like little huddled together and in little clumps. And the, the pas de deux takes place around these clumps. And so I had to be in a very close clump with my garlic red <laughs> And in rehearsals, um, when we were doing it, um, I would, like, come up for air and kind of gasp for <laughs> oxygen. <laughs> and finally, I had to ask the ballet master if he would please 
you know, ask him to refrain from the garlic while we were doing this particular work or something. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's real life. <laughs> That's real life. When you join a company, you start mm-hmm. in the corps de ballet, obviously. Mm-hmm. What are the levels uh, in, in most companies? Every company's different. Um, we now have four levels. There was a time we... Well, we actually have five levels. There was a time we only had three. We have corps de ballet. We have second soloist, we have first soloist, we have principal character artist, and we have principal dancers. You know, the Paris Opera has core phase and all sorts of different, I think they have five or six levels that goes up to étoile. I love that, Mm -hmm. étoile. Um, I'm not, you know, every company has its system and... You can fiddle with it, I guess, if you decide. But um, it's nice to be able to give people a feeling of being promoted within the organization and and reward their progress yes. that way. Yeah. And, and your rise was pretty meteoric, wasn't it? Well, again, it was circumstantial. You know, I, at, at timing, you know, I, I just read this book by Malcolm Gladwell, who's um, a Canadian and outliers, and uh, it just... He said so many things that I've always thought, but didn't, of course, wouldn't be able to put them as articulately as, as he did, about how, I'm just putting in a nutshell what uh, one part of what he talks about, but, you know, talent is all fine and good, but talent doesn't go anywhere unless you have all these other things that come into play at the right time. And for me in my career, uh, if I hadn't had the ballet teacher that, tried to put me on point and my mother sent me to another one who told me about the National Ballet School. If Celia Franca hadn't taken me under her wing, if if I hadn't had the opportunity to develop my career in the National Ballet of Canada, like there's so many, it wasn't just about the fact that I was talented. There's no doubt that I, I had talent and I worked very, very hard, but that isn't even enough. You have to, you know, and he, that's what he talks about and he does all these specific examples of people who've started, you know, great companies, and and it had to do with the opportunities they were given at the right time in their lives to fulfill their talent. And if certain things hadn't been happening in the world, they wouldn't have had computers to work on, and then they wouldn't have known, they wouldn't have Mm -hmm. been experts at that, you know, all of those. And everything lined up for me in a way that um, I, I couldn't have foreseen, and nobody's responsible and I'm certainly not responsible for the career I had except that I worked hard but well and it's more than just luck because Mm -hmm. uh, good timing um, relies also on good preparation Mm -hmm. a break could have come to you but if you weren't ready to seize it yeah it might not have worked out as well and and if you haven't had all of the things that fall into place before the opportunity that prepare you for the opportunity Mm -hmm. I had all those things. So when the opportunities came, I was ready. Um, Now, I didn't get them. I got them very fast in the company. And the reason I got to dance Swan Lake when I was 19 was because of a misfortune to poor Veronica Tennant. You know, I mean, she was badly injured and it hurt her back. And they were about to leave on tour with Swan Lake, and they already had a guest artist because we didn't have enough ballerinas. Martine Van Hamel had moved to New York. Um, Lois Smith had retired. Veronica couldn't, was, and then we had this other lovely uh, guest, Angelica Bornhausen, and then Veronica was injured. There was nobody else, and 
Celia had to sort of go, well, I can't afford a guest. What am I going to do? Let's try that one, you know, and suddenly I'm learning Swan Lake. Um, that wouldn't have been the sort of normal or um, best thing to do for a young person to put that kind of responsibility on them so quickly, but she had no choice. And I was young and um, foolish enough to not actually realize how difficult it all was. <laughs> After I'd done it, then I realized how <laughs> difficult it was. Yeah, and then I learned about stage fright and all those things. But and at, at that point, were you already a principal dancer? No, in that I was first in the court. You were in the court de ballet, so mm -hmm. that's right. That's right. I remember that story actually. So yeah. she plucked you out of the court de ballet. I was in the court de ballet. Yeah, I had done. Never I looked had, back, I presume. Well, uh, also there was an, an opportunity before Swan Lake. Um, Sir Peter Wright, who. Um, had staged our Giselle even before I joined the company. That's how, how old that production is, too. Um, he was doing Giselle, and he was casting it, and he wanted me to do the Queen of the Willies and Giselle, and Celia said, no, she's too young. And, mm. So that was fine. And, um, and then he, was, he did a ballet called The Mirror Walkers, and it was a short work that he choreographed himself, and he auditioned some principals and some soloists and me, and then he gave me the role. You can imagine how popular that made. <laughs> just like back at school. He just liked school, but, you know. <laughs> um, and in that, that ballet, which I remember doing here at the Art Center, um, and uh, we took it to London in 1972. Um, I, I had uh, quite a bit of success with that role. And I had Jeremy Blanton. I don't know if you remember Jeremy Blanton, but he was one of the principals at that point. So, you know, I did Swan Lake with Hazaro Sermayan, who was a brilliant partner. I did Mirror Walkers with Jeremy Blanton, who made me, you know, I could do anything and he could fix it. You know, I, I was very spoiled by my partners uh, as a young dancer. Anyway, those opportunities came very, very fast in my career. And, um, but it's very unusual. And uh, it did actually... Later on in my 20s, um, I had a, you know, I had a, I took a year off because I really couldn't cope with the pressure of w what everybody expected me to do. And, uh, and perhaps it started way back there in, at age 19 when I didn't go up through the ranks slowly and carefully mm -hmm. enough. I'm not blaming anybody because it was a huge opportunity and I loved every minute of it. But at some point, I had to catch up with myself and I... Um, I began to um, be terribly concerned about um, er everyone's expectations of me, and it started to impact me very badly in my work. So, so what did you do? You took a year off and just tried to think about whether you wanted to continue, or did you just say, I'm taking a year off and I'll be back? Did you know then what you were going I to do? I wanted to quit forever. But oh. at that point, Alexander Grant was the director, and he convinced me to just take six months, and then I kept extending it and um yeah I completely lost my confidence it's a it, it's a really terrible thing I could barely get on stage and um I I couldn't I couldn't stand it anymore I couldn't force myself to it was too much torture uh, and now in you know now it seems all so silly but it was very very real for it doesn't me sound then. silly at no, all it doesn't it sound how so. did you get over it how did you how did you work through it well at first I tried to sort of run away and visit all my friends in Europe and pretend it wasn't happening. <laughs> it was very mature. And then I came home and I got psychological counseling. And that's what helped me. It took a while, but that's what helped me dig my way out of that hole. 
there was no escaping if I wanted to go back, and I I did want to go back. I just couldn't go back the same way I'd been. So, yeah, it was counseling. It was it was help working through my insecurities and all the reasons for those and, and having courage again. Yeah. But that also must be very helpful now when you see younger dancers going through something similar. It's not just a, a, a theoretical thing. You've mm-hmm. been through it yourself. Yeah, and people do, and for different reasons and at different stages, and they suddenly find their motivation goes away and... And if you're not motivated in a career that's this physically demanding day in and day out, it you know, then you get really, you know, depressed. And and yeah, I see it. I see it. And were you able to come back with a different approach to your work, a different approach to your artistry? Yeah, very simplistically, um, I started to be able to dance for myself and not try to please anybody else. And I, that's a very very simple but but in the end it came down to that you know I was just uh, being battered by everyone wanting me to be this way or that way and and I was the sort of person who liked to please people and I was wasn't pleasing myself I was just pleasing everyone else and if I didn't get their approval then I was devastated and you know all those Mm -hmm. we're all different and we all have different needs and I needed to recognize what was affecting me so badly, and and uh, I needed help to do that. You sometimes you can't figure these things out on your own, especially if all you've ever done from morning till night is dance. <laughs> well, and especially if people are watching you all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not living alone. You're not training alone. Mm-hmm. You're you know really you're just constantly under scrutiny. Yeah, and people can be very cruel in their. Um, in what they write about you, and it takes a while to develop uh, a thick skin and be able to understand that it's one person's opinion. And and you know, it, it, but for me, everything I was, always, everything was life and death. Every show was <laughs> life mm-hmm. and death to me. You know, mm-hmm. I had no perspective about you know um, my own progress or my own value, or it was all about what everybody else thought. And I'm guessing you probably became a, a much better artist as a result of that. A happier artist, a person who who started to take responsibility for their own work and not worry about everybody else's input all the time, you know. But some people are like that from the beginning and need to learn to take more input and they would be better. I was just about only only input. Tell me how did what how do you want me to do this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, and I learned a lot from that. But at some point, you you have to figure out what what's important to you and what how you want to do something. And, and yeah. when you were in the studio rehearsing, looking at yourself in the mirror, would you say it's not perfect, so I'm not happy, or were you generally pleased with what you saw? I never looked in the mirror because um, uh, I didn't like what I saw. And uh, it would only defeat me. And I fortunately was, um, didn't wear contact lenses. And, and uh, so the mirror was pretty fuzzy, uh, which was very helpful oh. to me. And when I finally got contact lenses, I was, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, because I wasn't so much in my own little world. Because when you're a bit, when it's all a bit fuzzy, you, you can get more in your own world. and. Mm-hmm. You feel what you're doing, and you don't have to look and judge. And looking and judging is not always a good thing for a dancer because none of us are perfect. 
And we're constantly dealing, as I said before, with our limitations. And if all you do is focus on that, you defeat yourself. Mm -hmm. And that was also part of my problem. I wasn't looking at myself, but I, I knew what I was struggling with. Um, despite the fact that I had lots of talent, I still had a lot of limitations physically. I had strengths and I had lots of weaknesses too. And so, you know, as you get older too, you learn how to focus on your strengths mm -hmm. and try to cover your weaknesses if you can't change them. Some of them mm -hmm. you can, some of them you can improve. Um, but yeah, uh, the mirror was not, I, I, I didn't find it a friend to me at all. <laughs> you talked a little bit before about some of your partners who are, of course, some kind of mirror in another way. And so, so tell us a little bit about that. Tell us about dancing with Frank Augustin and, of course, Rudolf Nureyev. What do you remember about those things? What, what kind of value is there uh, in those partnerships? Well, Frank and I, I mean, we were just like kids, you know. Um, you are a famous Canadian couple. I mean, my gosh, everybody spoke about you all the time when they talked about dance. Yeah, but when we started together... Um, he, I was probably 20 and he was 19 and, uh, we got thrown into Romeo and Juliet together, this, this very production that's just been here at the NAC and, uh, uh, because I was supposed to do it with Laszlo and it, Laszlo was injured and it was one week before the performance and so they decided we would teach it to Frank. <laughs> it's sort of like your story with Swan Lake. <laughs> yeah. And he was really inexperienced with partnering and everything. And um it, it was it went pretty well until the last the what we call the bedroom pas de deux. And there's a place where um she takes off and runs and he runs with her and I I mean it's it's hard to describe. But anyway this is after the marriage. That the after the marriage, and this is when the when they're leaving, when he has to leave he has her. To go, right, so it's kind right. of desperate oh, and tormented, so emotional. and emotional. And we took off, and we were too close, and his feet got tangled up in my feet, and we both went down, just oh, like wow. splat on our faces in the middle of this pot of deux. And it was obvious; it would, you couldn't cover it. It was <laughs> it was a big mess. And that was our our first performance, and the. Um, review in the Globe and Mail the next day was so mean. Mm. Um, these two kids, you know, making their debut and, and had one one bad moment in a whole thing. And they, uh, and you know, Frank would would quote this for years <laughs> about how she said, it was Barbara Gale Rose. Do you remember Barbara I remember Gale? the name, yeah. yeah. I don't know whatever happened to her, but something about um, that I was too much of a woman for him. Can you wow. imagine what that what <laughs> that uh, what that does to a young man no who's kidding. taken on a huge role and is you know, I mean, it took him years to recover. I mean, he did awfully well because we had yes. a very good partnership for quite a long time. Yes, but, did. <laughs> but cruel things, you know, and that's the sort of thing that you're not prepared for. Uh, you, you know, you struggle with lots of things every day and 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 having the courage to go out after a week of rehearsal and do something like that. But to, to have someone um, be so personal and cruel, uh, you know, it, it, that it's sort of, that's unjust. what it is. Yeah. And, and, you know, you never actually get over people saying mean things, but you do get a little bit more able to put it aside. But when, when you're that young, it's just, it's horrible. So, yeah, poor Frank. But anyway, we went on to have <laughs> rather a good career together. Um, I'd say. And Celia, well, Rudolph put us together together. Um, 
in Bluebird and things like that, and uh, and everyone noticed us. And uh, then Celia decided she had been invited to be on the jury for the 1973 competition in Moscow, and she decided she was going to take us w- with her, and and we would compete. And um, wow, that was that was an incredibly grueling, difficult thing. And we had no idea; we'd never been in a competition or anything like that. And um, we arrived in Moscow in, in the summer, and it was hot, and there was nothing to eat. Um, <laughs> unless you stood in, I remember standing in line, Frank and Mary McDonald, who was our pianist, for an hour and a half. We didn't know what the lineup was for, but we knew it was for food, and we got a cucumber, oh, no. which we then hacked into three. <laughs> You you read these stories, but it's, so it's actually true. It's they true. line up for it's true. Back and, then, and um, you know the in the in the hotel where we were staying, which you know probably had ten thousand rooms, and we go to breakfast. I I was losing weight really rapidly. We both were actually, and I wasn't that heavy then, so we were both kind of fading away. And uh, um, there was nothing for breakfast that I could eat. And I, I remember the, the, the lady behind the counter holding up this dried fish <laughs> and, and thinking I would like to eat that, you know, just made me mm. nauseous. Um, anyway, uh, so we, yeah, we went in the first round. There were 123 contestants from God knows how many countries. You have been listening to the NAC Dance Podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nacpodcasts.ca. There you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and easy instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily subscribe to this audio program series in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Just search on NAC Dance. So until next time, this is Gerald Morris with the National Arts Centre in Ottawa. Thanks for listening.